Faced with the cataclysm that will destroy the magical heritage of their people, a secret conspiracy of mages resorts to harnessing the powers of the Netherworld to save their legacy. The only mages who can oppose them are Brayden and Quinn Reese, two brothers with a turbulent past and a caustic relationship, but both Brayden and Quinn are compromised, harboring terrible and tragic secrets. Will Brayden and Quinn be able to prevent the unsealing of the Well of Tears, or will they fall victim to the Dark Mage's sinister plot and join their conspiracy? Dark Storm by M. L. Spencer Book 1 of the Renmore Saga The grimdark fantasy series The San Diego Book Review gives 5 stars and calls a thrilling read, fast-paced, and bitingly entertaining. Dark Storm by M. L. Spencer Fans of morally great anti-heroes, page-turning action, and mind-boggling plot twists will love this award-winning series. Get your copy at Amazon on Kindle ebook or paperback and begin the epic adventure today. This episode is brought to you by Paternus by Dirk Ashton. The gods and monsters of old really did exist, and some still do. Now all across the globe they're coming out of hiding and hunting their own. When a group of strange men arrive searching for a catatonic old man named Peter, in their attempt to save him, Fee and Zeke embark on an adventure of myth and magic beyond imagination, space, and time. The final battle of the most ancient war has begun. Paternus by Dirk Ashton Thrilling, cinematic, funny, and frightening in turns. Past guest Nicholas Eames calls Paternus terrific, intelligent, intricate, suspenseful, and epic. And Josiah Baycroft says Paternus is expansive, ambitious, and engrossing. A Spiffbo 2016 Top 3 finalist and our fantasy finalist for Best Debut Novel. Listen on Audible or read for free on Kindle Unlimited. Get your paperback or ebook at paternusbooks.com. That's P-A-T-E-R-N-U-S books.com. Paternusbooks.com. It's National Novel Writing Month, people, and if you're taking the 50,000-word NaNoWriMo challenge, then you gotta start prepping, and I mean now. Archivos wants to help. From now until November 30th, any registered NaNoWriMo participant can get three months of Archivos absolutely free. Three months of all the story documentation, mapping, and timeline features, all the displays, everything you need to really wrap your head around your story totally free. With Archivos, you can look NaNoWriMo in the eye and say, I got this. Learn more about scoring three months of Archivos absolutely free at www.archivos.digital. That's A-R-C-H-I-V-O-S dot digital. Archivos, your stories illuminated. This episode is brought to you by The Heart of Stone by author Ben Galley. Merciless, murderer, monster. He's been called many names in his time. Built for war and nothing else. He's witnessed every shade of violence humans know. And he's wrought his own masterpiece with their colors. He cared once, but far too long ago. He is bound to his task, dead to the chaos he wreaks for his masters. Now he has a new master to serve, and a new war to endure. In the far reaches of the realm, Heartland tears itself into two over coin and crown. This time he fights for a boy king and a general bent on victory. Beneath it all, he longs for change, for an end to this cycle of warfare. The Heart of Stone by Ben Galley 
Available now in ebook or paperback at bengalley.com. That's bengalley.com. Every fighter has a last fight, even a fighter made of stone. This is author Raymond V. Feist. Hi, this is R. Scott Baker. This is Anthony Ryan. The Grim Tidings Podcast welcomes Delilah S. Dawson to the show. Delilah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is literary agent Mark Gottlieb from Trident Media Group. This is David Anthony Durham. Hi, this is Melanie Metters. Hi, this is Brian Stavely. Hello, this is Jesse Bullington slash Alex Marshall. Hi, this is Jeff Salyards. Hi, this is Michael R. Fletcher. The Grim Tidings Podcast proudly welcomes Stephen Erickson to the show. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward you're listening to the grim tidings podcast interview with ed mcdonald author of black moon It's the Grim Tidings Podcast. I'm Rob Matheny. And I'm Philip Overby. The British Invasion continues here on the show as we continue to highlight some of the coolest fantasy authors emerging from the UK. Today's guest dreamed of publishing novels from an early age, and after several decades and four or five trunk novels later, our guest finally found his boyish literary dreams fulfilled when the manuscript for his post-apocalyptic dark fantasy titled Blackwing was acquired from publisher Gallant for a robust six-figure deal, not to mention another six-figure deal from U.S. publisher Ace for the gritty epic fantasy trilogy. Past guest author Brian Stavely says original world-building and unforgettable characters make Blackwing a dark, powerful debut. Faith Hunter calls Blackwing potent, gritty, bloody, and splendid. And Django Rexler says Blackwing is a bloody, gritty fantasy novel that manages not to sacrifice heart. When not writing, our guests can be found lecturing at his local university or fencing with longswords, rapiers, and poleaxes. Currently residing in foggy London town and online at edmcdonaldwrites.com, the Grim Tidings podcast proudly welcomes author Ed McDonald to the show. Ed, thanks for joining us today, sir. Thanks very much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be asked. Yeah, great to have you on, sir. We are enjoying Blackwing. It's a great book so far, and uh, the buzz is definitely buzzing for you. It must be uh, pretty cool to have so much um, excitement for a fantasy debut like yours. We're having the British Invasion here on the show. We've had Anna Smith-Spark. I think we're going to get R.J. Barker on, but you Brits are really rocking it over there as far as uh, the fantasy genre goes, and we're delighted to uh, have you on today. Uh, you were recently at uh, Worldcon, and I saw that cool picture that you took. It was with you, Anna Smith-Spark, Joe Abercrombie, and the lovely Peter Newman. And you were all just kind of yeah. hanging out. And, yeah. and that, that must have been a fun we, experience. We, we, yeah, we were having coffee. Um, I mean, it's a funny old thing in Worldcon, cause, or any convention, where you've got all your panels going on, but then if you wander in the coffee shop or the bar, you'll find a table or two of, of you know, authors and whoever's been on the panels just having a coffee and talking about you know the weather and hotels and things like that so yeah we just sort of had, had gathered there by by chance um and obviously you know we looked something like an amazing grimdark <laughs> band so <laughs> Yeah, it was a very cool picture. Um, must have been cool hanging out with uh, all those individuals, including a, I, everybody on that in that picture has been on the show. So you're actually the last person to I, finally get on the show. So. Well, you know, they 
it's good to save the best till last. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think I think uh, they would all agree as well. Uh, you know, uh, it's a funny thing. You go to Worldcon and and in the same day, so you know, I had dinner with Joe, and then uh, slightly earlier in the day, I met uh, Robin Hobb, and then later in the day, I met George R. R. Martin, and I thought that is a that is a pretty stacked day. That is a lot of uh, childhood heroes um, to meet all in one go. Um, great thing. Everyone should go to Worldcon. Brilliant convention. Well, I think I have plans for Worldcon 2018 in San Jose. Uh, it's San Jose, actually yeah. on my calendar. So grim tidings may be on the scene. So we shall see. Um, but uh, yeah, must have been a cool experience. Um, so yeah, we're here to talk Blackwing. It's book one of the Raven's Mark trilogy. It was released in the UK in July from Galance and dropped in the US October 3rd from Ace. And the podcast should drop right around that date uh, for when the US release comes out. Um, so Ed, if you could tell us a little bit about Blackwing and what readers can expect when they pick up a copy, please. Okay, so um, when I came to write Blackwing, I, I as, as you say, I've written books before, and I'd done my time writing my prophesized farm boy heroes and that kind of thing. And what I really wanted to do was write a fantasy novel that felt more like it had the pace of a spy thriller. Or, um, you know, I was I was reading sort of Lee Child-type books at the time, um, Jack Reacher sort of things, and I thought, I really, really enjoy the fact that every chapter you're your page turning to get to the next chapter. Um, and in fantasy, a lot of the fantasy I've been reading was, was very sort of uh, lengthy descriptions of traveling and cities and things. And I thought, no, I want to, I want to focus just on a real solid core plot. So I dreamed up um, a mathematical paradox, which um, doesn't sound especially sort of fantasy or <laughs> heroic, but uh, it, that sort of form formed the heart of the, the mystery, I suppose that, that lies at the, the core of the book. So I, I had this idea that I wanted to write about a duel, an important duel that was going to happen, and a, and a mercenary who would have to fight in the duel, and then he would have to go on a journey after, but he'd have a sort of moment of self-discovery, um, and none of that happened. So uh, you won't find any of that actually in the book. Um, it kind of just turned into into what it is, which is um, so you've got uh, protagonist is uh, Ryholt Galharo. He's He's effectively a bit like, I say he's a bit like the fantasy FBI, if the FBI was really underfunded and took its orders from a complete madman. And he is sort of ordered around to solve the problems that will prevent the immortal enemies over the, over the misery um, from coming over to destroy everything, pretty much. And the misery itself is, is an area, it's a, it's a sort of massive desert wasteland that divides the surviving city states from this sort of uh, these ancient enemies who are bent on world conquest um and to change everyone into mutated twisted things and the misery itself is it's almost a character um it, it's I, I don't think i ever intended it to be but you kind of get the impression that maybe actually maybe itself is the misery is alive almost um it's a very dangerous changing place and I think that's where where it gets its description as post-apocalyptic. Um, it's the aftermath of a sort of ultra weapon that was used as a last resort. And I think uh, I've I've heard um, Ace have said, uh, you know, uh, Game of Thrones meets Mad Max. And I think whilst a lot of fantasy authors get compared to Game of Thrones, um, the Mad Max thing, I, I, I get where they're coming from on that because it is very sort of you know desertish, almost like magic punk cowboys at times. Um, I think that's a good way of thinking of it. There's a, a Western sort of uh, frontier quality, which 
you probably don't get in in a lot of other fantasy at the moment. Um, it's not uh, well. While you'll find some intrigue, it's not your typical kind of princes and princesses and generals. Whilst they may appear in the book, they are the side and background characters, um, and we just focus on on Rihal and what he's doing the whole time. First person as well, which is it's not completely unusual, but don't see that much of it in fantasy at the moment. So. That was a long, long-winded way of saying it's a fast-paced, action-packed fantasy thriller um, with post-apocalyptic themes. As but, great, and buy <laughs> ten copies. Uh, well, I don't know if people are aware of this, but Christmas isn't that far away. Um, it makes an excellent gift. Um, you can also use it for wall insulation if you if you've got problems there. There's no end to uses that you can put a, a book to really. Um, I, and and ten copies is probably going un, under buying. I would say. Oh, okay, so 20, 30 copies, maybe just to. Uh, you know what? Some people have reported back to me that thirty was optimal. Okay. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go over that. Yeah, that's the sweet spot, so to speak. Yeah, perfect. And I would say that our podcast is probably like Game of Thrones meets Reading Rainbow. I think. <laughs> <laughs> or Game of Thrones, or Game of Thrones meets a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I want to talk a little bit about the the types of magic and creatures that are included in Blackwing. Uh, there's one creature introduced early in the novel called a darling, which uh, I think makes everyone shit themselves when they see it. Uh, what what other kinds of creatures that e- exist in the Blackwing universe that you could tell us a little bit about? Because I'm a big monster fan, so I'm always interested in that kind of stuff. It's it's funny because I never really intended to write monsters, but the as I was going along, I just kept find wanting to put them in, and so they just just kind of got in there. Um, the monsters in Blackwing really come from two different places, and they're all a result of, for want of a better word, sort of bad magic. So in the misery, where it's this sort of almost nuclear wasteland where things change and everything is broken and wrong, you get these monsters uh, which are sort of twisted remnants of the past and there's one monster in particular that in the book which people always seem to pick up on um called gillings and gillings are they're like little two foot tall pudgy little red babies with uh, razor sharp teeth but if they if they bite you their saliva is a a potent anesthetic so as they eat you you can't actually feel it so if they find you in your sleep they will eat you alive and you'll never realize until you wake up without any legs. Um, and those are resonated with people for some reason. <laughs> Damn, wow. <laughs> I think there's something in us which sort of fears the idea of something that would kill you in your sleep and you just would never know that it was happening. And to be eaten, of course, is a, a particularly um, disturbing way to go. So, I mean, I, I, I may, I don't know, maybe I have a thing about being scared about children because darlings are also... Um, childlike creatures they're uh, they're very they're not necessarily young they're very old but they have the appearance of kind of eight nine ten year old children um kind of midwitch cuckoos if you if, you know the sort of the dark child idea but they are they are much stronger um, than the sorcerers you find on the uh on the heroic side if you like um they're sort of immortal almost impossible to kill and can take insane amounts of damage before they go down and um that i think there's something again sort of kind of terrifying about the idea of an implacable evil child which whines in a you know a high-pitched precocious voice but at the same time it can 
burrow mind worms into your brain and strip out all your memories. Children are scary. <laughs> I'll tell you, I was legit creeped out when I read Darlings. I was like, those yeah. things are fucking creepy. <laughs> they're, they're, yeah, I mean, some, some people do say there's horror elements in Blackwing. I guess that's where they mm. come from. Um, there, there are also um, much larger, sort of more sort of physical, physically threatening creatures. Um, we often see them at a distance. The enemy are all uh, what they're known as the Drudge, and they are all people who have been changed into mutated kind of creatures. They kind of look like people crossed with fish after they've been changed for a while. Um, and they're all, they're the sort of slave soldiers of, of the Deep Kings who are ancient Cthulhu-esque immortal ultra wizards. Um, you know, they're the kind of wizards that you, you're not going to, you're not going to take them out. If in D and D terms, level 20 doesn't begin to approach their, their awesome, you know, you'd have to create a new concept of, of character design to describe them. They wouldn't be allowed to roll for anything. They just automatically succeed. But while the, the deep Kings on one side are, are this ancient enemy, our hero, Rihel, is uh, bossed around by um, one of the nameless, who are sort of comparative wizards. And it wouldn't really be fair to say they were fighting for humanity. They're very much fighting because they want to win the war. People are just kind of useful to them to do certain meaningless jobs. And I guess that's where it's sort of the, sort of the grimdark element comes in. You're, you're not necessarily left sure whether or not uh, the nameless are, in fact in the best interests of humanity, awful as the alternative might be. Yeah, there's some messed up monsters and, and wizards and kind of stuff like that in it. <laughs> I was also struck by the uh, sundered sky that was wailing as well. I've never really come across that as much, so uh, it was very interesting how fucked up the world truly is. It's, a, it's truly a, a bleak setting, which is a grimdark staple. So I believe your book is pretty much to build as grimdark. Did you kind of set out to write a grimdark novel when Blackwing was being written or the darker elements just naturally emerge for you? I think, well, these days I would like to say I didn't intend to write grimdark, but I think that's probably not true. I, I was very much enjoying books by, you know, some of the, the ones, the people we consider to be grimdark staples these days, um, like uh, Abercrombie or Lawrence. But at the same time, I was reading Bernard Cornwell um, and historical fiction. And if you've read any of his Uhtred of Bebenberg, um, King Alfred the Great stuff, what really, I, I'm a medieval historian by um, education. And what always strikes me in reading medieval history is how much more grimdark real history is than any grimdark fiction in fantasy. I was doing a, uh, a dissertation for a, for a master's degree about Anglo-Saxon uh, treatment of hostages. And the way that, you know, in sort of between the years uh, 900 and 1100, the way that hostages were treated, dismemberment, cutting off noses, that kind of thing, it was just entirely commonplace. And I was thinking you have to, I wanted to try and imagine myself into this historical mindset that Bernard Cornwell does so well, where he writes characters who behave in a way that is not just 21st century morality imprinted backwards onto a society who carries swords. And so if you live in a society where there is no real, there's no real law, there's no forensics. It's, if someone doesn't get caught as a murderer in the first 24 hours after a murder, you're never going to find out who did it. You know, they'll have a wash and that'll be it. And to imagine how does that affect your mindset? How does that affect your interactions with other people? I think if you do that and you aim for that level of historical realism, 
you inevitably find that people will think what you're writing qualifies as grimdark because uh, a pre-modern reality is grim and it is dark. And I know there's a big, you know, ongoing debate these days about what is grimdark? What does that term even mean? And I think people vary profusely on what it means. But certainly one element is this idea of uh, historical accuracy, but particularly about the way that people behave. People choose to get away with things if they think that they can. And whilst that is quite a bleak outlook, um, for me, that's part of what, what makes Grimdark. It's it's little subgenre that, that we occupy. I like to compare Grimdark to like uh, like a hamburger. So okay. just follow my analogy here. <laughs> so <laughs> so some people like their hamburgers in different ways, but you don't really know what kind of hamburger you like until you start eating it. So sometimes uh, people like uh, their, their hamburgers burnt. Sometimes they like them, um, with cheese on them or whatever, but you don't really know it until you're eating it. And I think that's what grimdark is for a lot of people. You don't really know what it is until you, you're just experiencing it. And I think people put their own image of what grimdark is onto the label. For example, if someone likes a burnt hamburger, then they're going to put their burnt hamburger feeling about what they think grimdark is. If someone likes a medium well burger, then they're going to put their medium well burger image of what grimdark is. So that's what I keep seeing happen. It's like people have their own feeling of what it is. Um, I want to continue. Can I can continue your, um, your metaphor here? Yes, please. So (laughs) if you, if you like, if you like pickles on your burger and you know, let's be honest, who doesn't like pickles? Pickles are a bit like the sort of the violent elements in Grimdark. Mm. Um, and for a lot of people who pick up, you know, books by the sort of the, the major Grimdark writers, they will see there's a lot of violence in this book. Therefore, violence is what makes it Grimdark. But, you know, you could take out all the pickles and you could not eat the pickles and you're still having a Grimdark burger. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I... I, I I really think that, that I, I don't think the pickles are the important part that makes it makes it that burger. I think that they are usually an effect of writing a story where characters act in those particular ways. But I, I believe you could easily write a whole grimdark novel in which nobody dies. Um, I don't think anyone has to be hurt or killed. A lot of dystopian kind of uh, things about the awfulness of a life of you know constant toil and drudgery. I think you could write that as being very into a grimdark novel. It might be an interesting exercise to try at one point. Mm. Um, probably not for me though, because I really enjoy writing about <laughs> sword fights and guns and cannons and stuff like that. So, but you know what, we might see a short story or two, but um, which could be described as grimdark, where nobody even you know where there's no war, where there's just the constant ongoing struggle for survival in, a, in a, a cruel world i think i think that could be grimdark i'm sure there are many who will disagree with me on that one but um it might be an interesting experiment to try at some point let me call it like grim, grimdark no pickles new genre no pickles <laughs> yeah. no pickles grimdark <laughs> <laughs> I've seen kind of varying opinions on the rise or fall of Grimdark. It's either getting more popular or less popular. I presume since you're a Grimdark author, you're uh, hopefully 
Grimdark is on the rise. As far as from what me and Phil can see, I think it's on the rise. I see a steady stream of quality authors dropping amazing books, getting six-figure deals and things like that. And Our community and Grimdark Fiction readers and writers continues to evolve and grow with new members and new writers and all sorts of cool things. So I think it's on the rise. But uh, what do you think, Ed? Do you think Grimdark's going up or going down? Well, I mean, we, we have that constant issue of what exactly is it. Um, I mean, I've, I've seen some people... Uh, you know, uh, recently, um, Mark has been doing a poll on this and some people rate some books as, as grimdark as can be. And some people rate them as not grimdark at all. Um, so there is that variance, but among really, you know, you kind of know whether you're or not you're reading grimdark most of the time. I would say that I think the vocal audience, and it's always worth remembering that an internet readership are a very, very small subject section of readers in terms of the the volume they produce they make a lot of noise but you know they they are a, a less than 1% of readers then i think that in that readership certainly there is a, people have become a little bit tired of unrelenting bleakness in their reading and there's some theories going around that that may be because back when grimdark was in its heyday in the western world everything seemed to be going all right for a while or all right ish um and then in the current world we live now with, um, you know, Donald Trump and uh, nuclear threats over Japan and, you know, record level environmental weather patterns, that kind of thing. It may be that people are looking for something more hopeful, but it also also I think there is a, a case to be made that people don't necessarily even in Grimdark, people don't necessarily want books to be unrelentingly bleak. Um, it's good to come away from, from a book feeling like a little bit uplifted. And so I came up with a, a term um, when I was talking with uh, Scott Lynch a little while ago, um, the term being grim heart to imply, well, it's grim dark, but where actually we do have someone to root for. Not everyone is just an unbelievable, terrible shit. And I think you, I think audiences are, perhaps looking for that a little bit more if you if you consider like 80s and 90s fantasy was very much you had your heroes on one side and you know for the most part and they were actual genuine heroes they were randall thor they were garion in the belgaria that kind of thing Uh, weiss and hickman's heroes are all lawful good and people got sick of it because it wasn't real and now i think people perhaps are looking towards heroes who they can support again but once you've seen that sort of harsh reality of realism that grimdark portrays i don't think it's very easy to go back into the the belgariad type world where everything is you know people have a jolly time around the campfire and we all sing a song and let's hope that the kind people in the villages are all saved so i think it's natural that the genre itself matures and themes will move on I think we've had the utter bleakness, um, and I think we're moving into a more hopeful Grimdark or Grimheart trademark. Um, yeah. um, that's that's where I think we're going with it now. So, and I, I think one of the reasons that Blackwing got picked up when it did, and you know, you can you'll always hear authors talking about you have to just be selling the book at the right time for it. I think that what editors appreciated about Blackwing is that as bleak as the world is, and as the setting might be. The characters themselves have uh, have heart and they have loyalties to one another and they have a great love for each other in many ways. And I think for me, I love David Gemmell. You know, he's he's my legend by David Gemmell, my favorite book of all time. Read it many, many times. His characters are quite often, you know, just the legend. He's just he's as good as they come. You know, he has his iron code and he's 
uh, a man who serves other people before himself and this kind of thing. But you could chuck Joss the Legend into a grimdark world and he'd carve a path through it with an axe. And I think for me, that's what I wanted to see. I wanted to see characters that I could cheer and believe in, even if they're not a goody two-shoes. And Rahel Kahar certainly isn't that. He's got a lot of lot of problems going on in his head. But I liked at the end of the book to think that there's a chance that good might not necessarily win, but at least it doesn't suck. So yeah, that's what, that's where I think we're going at the moment. You talk a lot on your blog about um, some interesting topics. Uh, so we were perusing that. And one that, one that stood out to me was uh, uh, that is not a broadsword where you talk mm-hmm. about different types of weapons as they were used historically, since you're a weapons expert. Uh, you could shed some light on that for us. Since Grimdark focuses a lot on kind of the gritty nature of the world, do you believe that anyone that's writing Grimdark should focus on more historical accuracy when it comes to their weapons? Or is it okay to just kind of wing it and just chop, 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 you die? (laughs) (laughs) Probably around this time when I started writing Blackwing, I was very keen to make things historically accurate. And it was all meant to be a sort of, 14th, 15th century uh, landscape. And as I was writing it, I just found I wasn't interested in doing that anymore. I wanted to just throw in, you know, strange monsters. I wanted to, there was a point in my head where I just decided to put in gunpowder and I'd never intended gunpowder, but I wanted there to be an explosion. So in went the gunpowder and then the time period kind of had to move on. And then I found, "Eh, but you know what, if there's monsters, the kind of weapons that you're going to carry aren't going to be the historical weapons of of the real world um mm. and uh in, it's interesting it was posed this question by um adrian tchaikovsky um uh, a couple of days ago to do with whether should um why would you carry a sword when there's there's guns and one of the answers i came up with was uh well what if you're fighting things that have tentacles you know if that's a common occurrence then having swords specifically designed to cut tentacles would be a really good idea if, if you know, giant squids were your main adversaries. And the thing about weapons and armor development is it's, it's we talk about it as being a, the arms race where the armor improves to keep you alive and then you have to make a better weapon to beat the armor. So that's, you know, you see this development through people have got spears and swords, so you get mail armor and shields because shields are amazing against those. And then people go, right, well, how do we beat mail armor? So we'll stick with the spears. That's pretty good. And we'll uh, then start using two-handed weapons, which will just, you know, two-handed poleaxes, that kind of thing. It'll club the heck out of those people. So, you know, armor gets better. You end up with plates. And this is uh, also against arrows and this kind of thing. And as, as time goes by in the real world, we see that develop. So I think that in fantasy worlds, the weapons need to be consistent with the world in which the characters are dwelling. So in Blackwing, for instance, they they use poleaxes not because they expect to fight people in full armor, but because it's a really good weapon against a 12-foot-tall insect-type monstrosity that bursts out of the ground. (laughs) It's helpful. (laughs) It's helpful, right? Yeah, exactly. It's it's a long stick with a spike on the end and an axe and a hammer on the other. It's great. Brilliant weapon. Um, Similarly, the characters, they use... Uh, various different types of swords, but if they're using swords in the city, they're going to be using a, a rapier. Whereas if they're using a sword when they're out patrolling in the misery, they'll take cutlasses because you want that cutting edge more than you know. If you if you run certain types of weird monsters through, 
they don't really notice the sword's gone through them and they can't carry on eating you. So I think the important thing is internal consistency. Brandon Sanderson, he's, I, I would never claim Sanderson writes Grimdark, but you know, if you look at his shard blades in um, Way of Kings, Words of Radiance, they make perfectly good sense within the setting. He's justified how they can be wielded. You've got super armor that lets characters run around and do amazing feats. And suddenly you get thin and you think, this was a book about people fighting with nine foot tall swords. These are, you know, like anime swords. And if you saw one, it would look nonsense. However, it all makes sense in the context of the story he's written. And so for me, as long as there's a a logical internal consistency to what the writer has done, I'm totally okay with people coming up with any kind of weapon and writing any kind of stuff. I do get a bit sort of pernickety when people write about weapons that are supposed to be historical, but describe their use in such a way that it's just implausible or, or wouldn't happen. For instance, um, you know, when, when people are in fantasy books are swinging two-handed swords, and these swords are so heavy that they can barely be lifted. Of course, no one would ever carry a weapon that was too heavy to be lifted. Um, it, it, you know, you wouldn't fight someone with a sledgehammer because, it, you know, you can't swing it quickly enough. Real weapons are light. Um, and that should be quite obvious. And I guess we do, we, we think about it for dramatic effect, but it's kind of like the 1950s uh, Henry V movie they made, um, Shakespeare movie, where, uh, I think it's the 50s anyway, where the knights are having to be winched onto their horses because their armour is too heavy for them to get up. Of course, that's total and utter nonsense. So you can do handstands, you can do cartwheels wearing full suits of armour. People would not have worn it to fight in it if it wasn't an effective weapon in its own right. So when the details are wrong on that and the research is so readily available, I would hope that that would get picked up by editors or that people would perhaps um, rethink or, or just do a bit of research. You know, If you're writing about sniper rifles, I'm sure people will research how far can a sniper rifle shoot, what's its accuracy. And for some reason, don't necessarily do this when it comes to uh, hand-to-hand combat weapons. <laughs> but as long as, as long as it's internally consistent, then at the end of the day, it's not a history lesson. Fantasy books are entertainment. They're fun. They should be exciting. If people want to have ninjas doing cartwheels and backflips, absolutely. I, I love stuff like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I don't care that they can fly. It doesn't make any sense. But, you know, it's just a, it's just part of Chinese cinema is the characters will start flying at some point. You know, oh, okay, yeah, sure. Why not? Looks cool. Could be like a Dungeons and Dragons syndrome because I think a lot of a lot of the authors we've talked to on this show uh, grew up playing role playing games, specifically Dungeons and Dragons. And I guess the kind of feeling maybe some writers get when they start writing fantasy is this idea of the signature weapon. Like you mm-hmm. have your you have your special weapon, and that's all you can afford at first level. <laughs> So yeah, you have to use your long yeah, sword. It, it does 1d8 damage, so that's what you need. So maybe people yeah. don't think about that. You're absolutely right. Um, the idea of signature weapons is something that's really big in fantasy. And of course, almost every lead character's signature weapon ends up being a sword. Because we have a cultural history in the West of sword worship, we have it in the East as well, I suppose. 
because swords are high status items or they were at one point in the past um it's you know it's a, a noble's weapon a gentleman's weapon in its earliest forms and so we have characters who you know they have a magic sword like a you know an excalibur or a, the riven blade um from belgariad again or something like that but of course if you ever talk to people who've been in the army in combat situations they're never going to say to you you know my weapon um is the sa80 rifle um I'm aware there are other firearms that I could use, but <laughs> no, whatever situation I'm in, you'll find me, you know, on the battlefield or lying in an ambush or whatever, you'll find me with my SA-80. Well, obviously, you know, you the reality is you pick the tool for the job. And and a weird thing if you if you learn to do any sword fighting or or medieval martial arts yourself, or I suppose Eastern martial arts as well, you'll find that a guy who's got no training equipped with a spear will beat a well-trained swordsman four times out of five the swordsman just can't get close the spear is too nimble it can't be grabbed it will just stab the swordsman um and you know in a one-on-one like that the spear is a better weapon but then you find well a spear is not very helpful for carrying around town when you want to go to the pub so then the, that's why the sword is the sidearm you know and if you're going into battle and you're fully armored you don't take either you take your pole axe because you you don't you know you, you can uh, and it's it's a better battlefield weapon but um, everything's got its situation. And yes, we all love big, impressive magical swords at the end of the day. You know, I don't think you can be a fantasy fan and and not enjoy a magic sword now and again. And a lot of that probably is down to D&D. Um, mm. my, first, my first D&D character was uh, a warrior. He was called Edrin. It's quite embarrassing now, but I did put my own name into his name. <laughs> But nice. I was pretty young, yeah, yeah. But of course, you know, he had he had his bastard sword, and uh, then he got a magic one. And so I very much uh, can can relate to other authors who who brought their inspiration through that as well. Oh, uh, so you lawful sure? Good. Can you believe it? Lawful good. <laughs> oh, what a bo- like these days, wouldn't everyone just be, you know, at least chaotic neutral? Just yeah, much much seems, funnier. That's the best one. You could just do whatever yeah. you want, be an asshole, and oh, I'm chaotic <laughs> neutral. Fuck it. That's it, yeah. So we usually talk a, a little bit about uh, the path to publication with uh, debut authors uh, mm-hmm. like yourself. We recently had uh, Anna Smith-Spark on the show, author of The Court of Broken Knives, uh, who just happens to share an agent with you, Mr. Ian Drury. Tell us a little bit about how you got hooked up with uh, Ian and kind of how you got your uh, book deal. When I finished writing Blackwing, I sent out submissions to 10 or 12 agents and publishers. And my plan was always, every time I was rejected by one, I would send out another submission. I, I didn't know that it would ever get there. I sort of hoped it would. I think Ian got in contact with me seven months after I'd sent it to him. It takes him that long to get through his slush pile because he gets so many new um, books in. Uh, you know, being sent to him every week. I'd had talks with other agents before that, almost gone uh, with another agent. And he, for whatever reason, maybe his list was full, but he he couldn't take me on. And uh, then Ian just gave me a call. It was the week of uh, FantasyCon in the UK. Um, he gave me a call, said, uh, could I send him through the full manuscript? Um, he didn't, he hadn't read my whole sample. He, he told me, he said, I've only read the first uh, 30 pages out of the 50, but uh, I want to read the full manuscript anyway. So it was a good start. Um, and he read it over a weekend, came back to me, said, I'd like to represent you. I went in and met him on a Tuesday. The following, I think it was the following week on the Wednesday, we had an offer. And the week after that, we had UK, US, German and French deals in place, which is not normal. None of this is, I'm, I'm very much aware that that is not a normal 
timescale for publication. Everyone will quite rightly say that usually you would expect to go out on submission. It would be a few months, that kind of thing, if there were bites at all. I think for me, it happened to be a lucky time of year. It also happened that I'd happened to write something for which there was, I guess, a hunger within the the traditional publishers industry at the time. I think they wanted to be publishing more books that were sort of along that vein. And yeah, so we, we had those deals. And, and then in less than a year after that, it's uh, come out in the UK. And I'm looking forward to the October release in the US. Um, very exciting stuff. Yeah, you just exploded very <laughs> quickly with a couple of six-figure deals. So uh, not too bad on the pocketbook. So that's, that's yeah, good. Yeah, that, that was all right. I, was, I, was, I mean, <laughs> I owe Ian an awful lot of, of thanks. The problem is uh, with, with trying to get into being published that you have no idea of what agents do, really, or how important they are. And, you know, the publishing industry itself can be something of a, a mystery. But to just sort of put it into context, after I got picked up by Ian, he just did everything at this, at this point. He took it to the publishers. He sold it to them. We actually had auctions going on on both sides of the pond um, with rival publishers bidding against each other. Ian held the auctions. And, of course, that's much better for you as an author because it means that you your deal will be more impressive. And it's not just, it's not just about um, the money. It's about what they're offering as a company to you as well. You know, when they talk about the marketing they're going to put in place, they talk about uh, how they'll distribute all this uh, kind of thing. And without Ian, I, I wouldn't be talking to you today, I'm sure. It, it could be a, a very, very different story. I might be working on something else and Blackwing might be sitting uh, on my hard drive, never to be reopened again, I don't know. But, you know, he offered some edits, um, not very many, nothing that I couldn't do over a weekend. And then he took it and he sold it. And his at his agency, there's a foreign rights department. The foreign rights department periodically send me emails saying, we've got you a deal in Spain. We've got you a deal in Hungary. We've got you a deal in Russia. Would you like to accept it? And of course, uh, you know, I say, yes, of course, I would like to accept it. Um, and so... There's a, a film and TV department and, you know, hopefully one day, if the dream could come true, might see a, uh, an adaptation one day. You know, you, you do have to remember as an author that the chances of that actually happening are uh, even worse than getting published in the first place in terms of odds. But at the same time, you know, agents do an awful lot for you. And so I am I'm very thankful to Ian for, for everything that he's, he's done for me. Um, and I think it's hard to see just how much they do. Even with him as my agent, it's a bit like looking at an iceberg. I see a small part of the work he does. And, he, you know, he, he doesn't have to tell me all the details of what he's doing. I don't need to know. He just comes to me and says, oh, um, let's go and meet Glantz. And so we do. But yeah, a very important part of my, my publishing story, if you like. And it took you some work to get there. I mean, you wrote four or five trunk novels um, yeah. to chomp, chomp your writing teeth, so to speak. Uh, how did you know when a trunk novel became a trunk novel? When you're like, this is not the right one, on to the next one. It sounds odd to say it, but I would say pretty much as soon as they were done, I would edit, I would make it as good as I could and then I'd start sending submissions and I, I only tried to to get two I got tried to get two of them published before but in each case I think I only ever sent out about 10 12 submissions for those because I just knew I could look at it luckily I was able to and you do you do talk to writers who are puzzled why their book might not be selling but with me, I look at it and was always able to say, no, I can see exactly what the problem is. It's one of them. Uh, I wrote a 300,000 word novel. And the problem was it was just too long. 
some people do manage to sell novels of that length, but it's highly unlikely um, that agents and publishers are willing to take you on and pick that up. Why is it so unlikely? Well, the publishing costs, it's expensive to print a lot of pages. And can you not cut it in two? That's what one one agent did come to me on that novel and said, is it possible to chop it in half? And I, I looked at it and thought, no, <laughs> why is that? Because nothing happens for 150,000 words in the middle. We're at wizard school, aren't we? The prophesied farm boy has gone to wizard school, as he always does. So, I, yeah, I just kind of knew with them. And, but I, I'd, always, I'd always start sending whilst immediately moving to work on something else. And um, I think that's a very, very good way of doing things as a writer. That I saw, I'm going to steal somebody else's words here, unfortunately. I'm trying to think who, who it was that said it. I saw somebody say on Twitter, so I apologize to them for not remembering who it was, but another author saying that, if you immediately start writing another novel after you finish a novel, you don't have that all your eggs in one basket issue where if your book hasn't sold in six months and you're still trying to sell the same book that, you know, you get all those feelings of gloom and, and doom because it is a depressing thing when people don't want to buy your work and you worked very, very hard on it over, you know, possibly over years. But, you know, everyone's publishing story is wildly different. You find the more authors you talk to, I'm sure uh, Anna Stevens, for instance, has told me that she worked on her book for 12, 13 years, um, whereas Blackwing was written in 11 months. But I got to write all my... Um, all my prophesized farm boys got written out of me in, in the preceding years. It, it, if you treat it like a job, then I think that's, that's a healthy way of doing it, rather than considering... I, I very much see myself as a workman crafting something. And in the same way that if, you, if you're a carpenter and you want to make beautiful tables, then you can make beautiful tables, but first and foremost, it's a table. And you've got to remember you're making a table for someone to use to put things on. You're not making a table that is just for you to exult in its own glory and how much you love it. That's a strange analogy, isn't it? <laughs> I love my It's a table. burger. It's a burger. Yeah. It's a big burger table. <laughs> Let's talk a, a little bit more about trunk novels as far as uh, new, newish writers. Uh, we have a lot of writers that listen to our show, and they may have uh, planned a big epic series right, right when they start. And I think we've all kind of uh, tinkered with that idea, anyone that's into fantasy. Um and you, re you mentioned on a uh, blog post you wrote uh, at the beginning of this year, uh, You Are Not George R.R. R. Martin, which is a yeah. uh, nice uh, title. Uh, it's, good to not, it's good to not plan so far ahead. It's probably better to start with a standalone or smaller series. Uh, why do you think some newer authors tend to, to do this shooting for the moon and they, they want to get their big, fuck you series like right right out like right out there what I, I think it, if you're a fantasy author or you know you want to write fantasy i think it's inevitable that you want to emulate the authors whose work you've really really loved in the past and if you think you know the the, the big sellers the really big sellers are guys like robert jordan robin hobb brandon sanderson and they write long series epic series they keep having to chop Sanderson's books in half <laughs> or they won't fit in a book because they're so massive. And they, you know, Robin Hobbs uh, sort of elderlings type series now stretches three, four trilogies plus the rain worlds, which is maybe another four or five books. So, and of course the wheel of time, if you love the wheel of time, it's 14 books. Um, and people want to write those massive epic series and, and it's understandable, but it, as a starting point, the chances of being successful at doing that 
if you've not previously written something, it's a little bit like saying, okay, I've become interested in canoeing, so I'm going to cross the Atlantic. Um, I'll stop off for supplies uh, every five days through my canoeing, but I'll start by doing that. When you, know, you might be better off trying to cut your teeth a little bit earlier on some calmer waters. I often talk about writing in terms of how if you want to be a professional writer and you want publication, you have to approach it in some ways as a business. And that's not to say you shouldn't write what you love and you should and whatever themes you want to explore are the themes that you should be exploring. But at the same time, if you go to a publisher and the ending of book one is not the end of a story, then you've got a problem, which is you've not proved to a potential publisher that you are able to finish a story. They're, they would have to gamble on relying that you can finish a story some books down the line. So the advice I always try and give is write a standalone book that has clear series potential. Fantasy readers like series. They buy series. With the, the Raven's Mark books, I very much always wanted to write more than one book. And quite often, publishers will give three book deals, that kind of thing. So Blackwing stands alone. Um, you could read Blackwing and never read any more of the series and you'd be fine. You wouldn't have to. Now, hopefully people will want to carry on reading the series. And in fact, each book goes on to cover more events in the world. And there is a, they, they work in sequence. They all follow the same character. And by the time you get to the end of book three, you, you ought to have read books one and two at least. But if you never read past book one, you wouldn't feel like you hadn't, uh, hadn't, you know, you, you have finished the story of book one. Um, it's complete in and of itself. And I think from a business perspective, that is an easier sell to an agent or a publisher. If you can say, here is a completed story, people can read it on holiday, they can read it on the bus, and when they finish it, they don't feel obligated that they have to buy another three books in a five books, ten books in a series to understand where the characters will get to. That's not to say that people don't sell uh, series that work like that. They do. Nothing is is routine or regular in publishing. There are always openings, but I would always advise people, do what works in terms statistically, statistical likelihood of getting you where you want to go. Finish a book. Finish your first book, but leave a few plot threads open. Don't kill off every character. Leave a few little unsolved mysteries, and with those, that lets you continue into a series, and everything can work from there. It's a practical piece of advice. It may not be what we all want to hear. When I wrote my 300,000-word farm boy epic, that was part one of seven. <laughs> and, you know, this was an obvious bad idea. Um, you know, at that point, if you if you think, right, so part one of seven took me two years to write it, won't have finished this series for another 12 years. And of course, we without going into um, the uh, why, what the reasons for delays are, we know that some series do uh, encounter delays and that can be quite a frustration sometimes for readers. There's always good reasons for the delays. It would be wrong to imagine any writer just sort of sits back and goes, no, nah, I'm not going to finish it. But you know, I, I would like to get my stories told in such a, a timely manner that, that readers can feel fulfilled one by one as they as they read the books. So that's my advice. Write a standalone novel that has series potential. And I think that is easier to get an agent to come on board with you and, and take it from there. No, no doubt you have uh, some good advice. And anybody who is on Reddit would be glad to know that you are very active on a few of the uh, subreddits on writing, including fantasy writing and just uh, general writing as well. So for any listeners who are on Reddit, you can be sure to uh, follow Ed on Reddit. Um, I've got your handle here. It's, uh, it's Ed McDonald underscore Blackwing. 
There we go. I've always been a big member of um, Reddit communities. Um, I, I used to do a lot more on the fantasy writing Reddit. These days, I'm more on Reddit fantasy and our writing as well. Um, so yeah, please, if you are a Redditor, please do say hello. Yeah, we've got a vast wealth of knowledge definitely to pick from, from uh, uh, writing fight scenes, uh, medieval weaponry, on all sorts of cool stuff I've seen, uh, which you've had to post there. So uh, a wealth of wisdom, Ed McDonald. So uh, good stuff there. Um, so Blackwing is available in the UK now, drops October 3rd. So by the time this episode is released, folks can uh, buy it. Uh, we have a Amazon link in the show notes for listeners to pick up a copy, or 30 copies is the recommended quotient of copies you want to pick up of Blackwing. 31. 31. <laughs> 31 is actually the 31 flavors <laughs> um so uh how's book two coming along book two is uh it's got the title raven cry at the moment and it is written it's with my editors i have three editors who all edit it concurrently one in the u.s uh jess wade at ace and jillian and craig in uh at galance in the uk um it's with them at the moment hopefully they won't want me to change things too massively I'll, I'll get some notes back from them shortly i've already started the third book so uh we're moving on a pace third book of 17 in the series <laughs> yes that's right <laughs> <laughs> so just a planned trilogy then uh for now the character arc that i want to go through the trilogy is purely for a trilogy i do have some ideas about a different protagonist who might uh, have some adventures in the same world we'll see how we go with the first three i think there are going to be more more stories that i would like to tell about the misery and the world uh, that blackwing operates in yeah and then any plans for any short fiction or any other pieces that uh, folks can read or check out uh, forthcoming from you that's not the specific novels Okay, yes. So um, booknest.eu have a charity anthology called The Art of War. I'm sure perhaps some of your the other guests you've had may have spoken about it before, um, but featuring names like Mark Lawrence. But I think there's about 50 authors contributing short fiction to it. So I have a, a story, um, which is it's a story set many, many years before the events of Blackwing, actually. But And it stands alone as a story. You don't have to have read Blackwing to, to enjoy it, I don't think. But so I've got a story appearing there. I'm working on a graphic novel, uh, kind of a, a spin-off um, from Blackwing, with somebody at the moment. And I've got a couple of other other things in the, in the pipeline as well as side projects. But I think I've probably gone and done that thing where you go, I will do all the projects. Um, but for now, uh, do do please check out uh, the Art of War anthology coming out. All profits made for it are donated to. Uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, I think they're called, um, Doctors Without Borders. If I garbled the French there, I'm deeply sorry, uh, <laughs> French speakers. Um, but Doctors Without Borders, great cause, great charity. Yeah, great anthology lineup for a great cause for sure. So uh, short fiction forthcoming from the Blackwing universe from Ed McDonald. So that should be very cool. Um, any uh, con appearances coming up for you in the next couple of months? Uh, I've got uh, Fantasy Con at the end of this month in... Peterborough in the UK. There's a there's an event coming up called the Grim Gathering, which I'm not I'm I'm not on the Grim Gathering. I'm not on the panel. I'm going to be there anyway, just uh, probably uh, heckling from the audience. Just um, crash so, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm just going to sort of turn up and try and outcall Joe and uh, and the gang. <laughs> it's going to be a hard sell. Just but, heckling. Um, yeah, so I'll be hanging around. Um, I think that's the end of the convention scene. So, oh no, there's there's Glance Fest in London, in UK, in uh, November. And then hopefully, I may be getting to 
Comic Con in Seattle in May or March next year, and oh. Phoenix Comic Con uh, in May or March next year. I forget which way around they are, but I should be um, getting out to those as well. Um, I've never been to the States before. Massively looking forward to it and excited about it. So yeah, hopefully get out there early next year. Well, I'm just three hours south of Seattle, so if you happen to make it, we may have to share an ale or something when yeah. you're in the States, or a spot of tea. I know that you, you won't like get away with is. just one ale. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thirty-one, maybe ales. Yeah, thirty-one, the optimum <laughs> number of ales. <laughs> so you're on uh, online at edmcdonaldwrites.com, on Twitter at edmcdonaldtfk. TFK, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> what does TFK you- mean? It originally stood for the Fat Knight, um, oh. which was because I was intending to tweet all about uh, martial arts and training medieval weapons and that kind of thing. So that that was the name of, of my, my Twitter back then. But I'm not as uh, portly as perhaps I was then. Maybe I am. I don't know. Maybe I'm just deluded about how many biscuits <laughs> <there now>. um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so now. Yeah, so that's stuck around. That's, that's, but that's what it came from originally. The Fat Knight. Yeah, the fat night. Blackwing, available now in the UK and the US by the time this episode drops, so folks can pick up 31 copies, uh, find all the links in the show notes for sure. Drop by Ed's website, follow him on Twitter, and we look forward to book two. And would you please come back on the show when book two drops, and we'll talk about that one as well? Uh, I'd absolutely love to, yeah. It'd be an absolute pleasure. Brilliant, Ed. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Good luck to you in all your writerly and publishing endeavors, and thanks again for joining us on the show. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute treat. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Grim Tidings Podcast. Be sure to visit our website at thegrimtidingspodcast.com. Subscribe on iTunes and be sure to leave a review. You can visit us online at our Facebook group, Grim Dark Fiction, Readers and Writers, or hit us up on Twitter at Grim Dark Fiction. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.